0: This is Show Up as a Leader, a show from People Forward Network, helping you maximize your positive impact on the world by becoming your best, fully authentic self. Hey, everybody. I am really excited for this conversation that I had with Brandi Olson. She believes that we shouldn't have to choose between doing good, important work and our own humanity. And she is such a dynamo. She has been working with nonprofits like Mayo Clinic. She's worked with universities. She's worked with startups. She's worked with Fortune 100 companies. She is a sought after speaker and best selling author. She wrote a book called Real Flow. And more importantly, she's just full of really good insights and wisdoms. And there are things that I took away from this conversation. She talks a lot about managing our work in progress, meaning how much work can we actually take on any given time. And for someone like me who seems to always overjam my schedule and it's an ongoing battle, this really resonated with me and really talked about where are we impeding our value versus adding to it and where does the value flow through our lives, through our teams, through organizations. And she talked a lot about context switching and really we know that we can't multitask but really the realities of what happens when we don't give ourselves focus time to finish something so i will tell you i am walking away from this conversation already reimagining my calendar and schedule which i think i've been getting better about but there are some tangible things i'm taking away from this conversation i hope you take them away as well and really start to look at how you can add value and be realistic so you can honor your humanity and be impactful with what you bring into work and what you bring into the world. All right, Brandy, I know we have a lot to get to, so I just want to dive right in. One of the things that I know there's such synergy in our work is you are super passionate about helping leaders and teams get real work done and specifically Really designing work for humans. So, can you tell us more about what that means? I am really
1: passionate about that because I really believe that there is an abundance of important work to do. And if you are doing important work, the only place that that work will actually get done is in reality. And so, we have to focus on how to design our organizations, how to choose our work, how to design our teams so that we can get the right work done in reality. And so often, so much of the way that we try to think about how we ought to get work done or how our organizations ought to be structured is based on some myth that just doesn't line up with how humans actually do work and how we work together and how we collaborate. So I'm really passionate about getting out of the fantasy and just right into reality and then going from there.
0: Give an example of what is like a myth that you know people tend to espouse to and what's the reality?
1: Ooh, gosh, there's so many. Okay. So the one that like jumps to mind because I've been teaching about it a lot lately is the myth that you can take your organization and divide it up into lots of parts and teams that each do their very own thing. And the myth that if each team or each part of your organization is well-optimized, as is efficient as doing their job, that somehow that will add back up to a whole Which just isn't true for how it works because, for example, how your sales team operates. If your sales team is highly efficient and highly effective, they might be going through the roof with sales, but that might not match what your delivery team can keep pace with. So just because each department is doing its job doesn't mean that the whole is working.
0: What's so interesting about that is I do see this a lot as well with organizations we work with and we do a lot of team-based work and everything always has to be in context. So we're always talking about what's the bigger context to your point. Like there's a lot of challenges and disruption and change going on in the world. We have to think about well-being. We have to think about just everything. And yes, we need each team to be functioning within the realm of that bigger context. So how do you help more of that integrated approach so that we're all rowing in the same boat to serve a shared purpose, but we're doing it in a way that isn't trading off one for the other? So how do you do that with groups? I was just working
1: with an organization yesterday on this. They're a biotherapies organization, and they, in particular, like move cells from donors all over the world to the labs that can turn those cells into treatments and get those to patients. And they are structured, have been structured in that very like compartmentalized way. And what we did and what I recommend that any organization do is kind of shift that structure on its side and start to look at how does value flow? through your organization. And I conceptualize that kind of like a river. How do you go from a promise of value in your sales process to actually delivering on that so it gets to the customer and the people who are going to take the service and products you offer and get some sort of value out of that? And when we start to map that out and look at how that flows, we can start to see so many times the ways that our teams are designed, the ways that our departments are designed impede that flow of value. Because the reality is there's no value in just like mapping out your logistics path totally on its own or just having a plan. There's no value in each of those little tiny parts. You need them all together to actually get something useful to your customer, to your organization, to the people that you serve. And so when you start to look at how does value flow, Through your organization, you can start to see all the places that we slow it down or we do things that don't add a lot of value to ourselves or to our customers and the people that we serve, starts to reveal what I think of as like that organizational ecosystem, which isn't just made up of its individual parts. It's made up of the whole.
0: We all know that human beings, let's just be honest, we are messy species and we tend to have various levels of willingness and skills to adapt in a complex changing environment. And so I might be sitting in a team and be like, okay, I I get this and that, oh, there's some areas where our team isn't adding value. And now suddenly, rather than being excited about, oh, we can shift some things, I might go into self-protection mode. I might go into a shame spiral. I might now cling really tightly because it feels very threatening to me to do things differently. So how do you help care for that? Because that's a very real thing that's happening all over the place right now.
1: I think it has to start with leaders, right? So if you're trying to make those changes as an individual in your organization, you can make grassroots progress, but it's going to be slow going and it's going to require so much more courage to try to influence that change because it is a whole ecosystem, right? So in my work, I work with leaders who are saying, okay, we got to do this differently. It's not working right. We really work together to bring the entire organization into the process. One of the things that's true about people and change is we're actually really well adapted to change. Humans are incredibly exceptional in their capacity to adapt, learn, and change. But what is true about humans is that we have a limited capacity for how much change we can manage at any given time. And we tend to not want to engage in change that we view as threatening or self-harming. And so from a leadership perspective, Whether that is showing up as a leader in your team or showing up as a leader as a manager of teams or showing up as the leader as the CEO of your entire organization, understanding and paying attention to how much change is in progress at any given time and what the goal is and how people perceive the goal is really important because if we're maxed out on change or we're maxed out on our capacity to even consider doing something new, we're going to be shut down and we're not going to even be able to engage with a different idea. The other thing that I think is really important when it comes to talking about change is really helping people come up out of their isolated goal and see the bigger picture. I find that when we start to look at first, how does value flow and who's that customer and what do they need from us and how do we serve them? People love understanding how their work connects to the outcome that they want to see. And when you start to make those connections, change becomes less threatening as something that like is happening to me and more empowering as what do we need to do together in order to get to that outcome? And I can understand and see how my work, my adaption, my change contributes to that outcome that we're after.
0: It reminds me of a quote from Peter Senge where he says, people don't resist change, they resist being changed. And I think that threat comes where we don't feel like we've had any say. And in in all of our work, we regularly quote Margaret Wheatley, uh, where she says, "People only support what they've helped to create." And while it seems common sense, you know, I feel like weekly I have these conversations with clients and leaders of, "Are you including the people who are going to be impacted by this change?" And I think that in the last you know three years, with all the turmoil that's gone on in our world. There has been so much change that has been imposed on us that we don't have a say in. But when so much feels out of our control, it has a cumulative effect. And then it starts to lead to stress and burnout. There was a stat earlier this year from, I can't remember the organization, but they said that Americans today can only absorb half as much change as they could in 2019 And if you think about all that's gone on, and so how do we help them do that? I'm a big believer of, you know, using that vantage point, like, okay, well, let's take a step back for a second. Fast forward to a month from now or two months from now where this is resolved, or if someone's really stuck on the future and getting worried, can we zoom them into today? Well, what do we know today? So that vantage point shift is a really... Helpful thing, I think, to help manage anxiety, help manage change, but it's very present and real right now. And I think that people are looking for some ways to help themselves, but also help their teams and their organizations.
1: They are because I love a good Margaret Wheatley quote. And one of the other things that she says is that changes are ever present, constant companion. And that's part of reality. And so when it comes to just how do we do good work in reality, reality is change can come from directions and ways that we can't anticipate and we can't predict. The other reality is we're human. And so as humans, we engage and respond to change in different ways and how we do that is influenced by our values, by our culture, by our personal life experience. And we bring all of that to and how we navigate change and it's all around us. Right? So while we can't predict exactly what is going to change, from a leadership perspective, we can predict that something will change. And so we can design our organizations, we can design our teams, and we can design our culture to be adaptive and responsive in the face of whatever kind of change is happening. And I think there's a few things that can really help us with that. One is just to recognize that like we all bring a sense of cultural values and perspectives to how we engage with change. Some of us love it and thrive and change has generally brought us progress and good things in our life. Some of us feel that change disrupts relationships and tradition, and that's not bad, but also change keeps happening around us, right? So we still have to engage and respond to that. And I think that once we start to recognize just how we each bring our own unique Life experiences to that then we can start having conversations so we have to start to look at what does it mean to understand what kind of change is happening around us not all changes equivalent and how do we navigate it together and then how do we organize ourselves so that whatever comes next we're a little bit more adaptive we can learn a little faster what to do next and how to pivot and how to adapt
0: so One of the other things as I think about that, you think about change that I know you do this work and I think it's so relevant right now is that there's so many things going on and with so much change happening and so much disruption where it can be good and it can be scary, right? Because it bumps us up against our need to cling to what's familiar and self-protect is I've seen organizations that they have like a hundred priorities or they have 10 major strategic initiatives and I'm like, nobody can hold on to that. People cannot function when everything is considered both urgent and important. And so people are trying to do a gajillion things at once. I've been working with teams lately where I literally am like, please, during this session, shut off your chat, shut off your email. And it's like mind boggling for them. And I'm like, do you give yourself permission to do one thing at a time? Because we know that we can't multitask. It's attention shifting. And so you talk about this idea of organizational multitasking and how that is really detrimental to us. So talk about how we can work through that and what organizations need to watch out for and what can be helpful to set us up for success. Every single
1: organization, every single leader I've ever worked with struggles with the reality that there is an abundance of important work to do. And you can say no To a thousand things that aren't as important and still be left with an amount of work that is all important, all high value, and still exceeds your capacity to get it all done at the same time. And so we need to prioritize because everything is important. And I think so many times we feel like I can't prioritize because everything is important. But we actually need to work on our prioritization because everything is important. And so if you actually are looking at a list of 10 initiatives that need to be done by the end of 2023, you have to prioritize so you can get them done, not just get them started. And that's really an important shift that we really look at. If we have to get it done, then we have to look at how we prioritize it and how we manage The amount of work we're pursuing at any given time. And I call that, I don't call it, like lots of people call this, your work in progress limit. But here's where it becomes so important and why I think this is one of those other myths that just gets us in a cycle of working in really anti human and anti effective ways. And yet it has the appearance of being valuable. It's because of how people respond to and how humans respond to trying to do multiple things at the same time. And you mentioned it, right? We're not actually multitasking, we're context shifting and we're context switching. And what's happening in our brain is the part of our brain that manages context switching, which is about shifting our attention, shifting understanding of the rules that are applying to what we're doing. And the goal is it's an executive function task. And our brains can only do one executive function task at a time. Other executive function tasks are things like analysis, communication management, planning, creative thinking, these all fall under our category of executive function tasks. And our brain, every human brain can only do one of those executive function tasks at a time. So if we present ourselves with multiple projects to get done at the same time, or multiple tasks to complete while we're in a single meeting, our brain actually just forms a big long queue. And we grow a cognitive load and a cognitive line of tasks that just we have to carry with us. And it adds a cognitive load and weight and clutter to our brain. And why that's important is because research shows over and over again, that if you're trying to do two things at the same time, you're likely spending about 40% of your mental energy, just managing the switch between those things, just doing the context switching. And that leaves about 60% of your actual mental energy to do the work. If you're trying to do three things at the same time, You'll spend about 60% of your mental energy, which literally translates to the calories your brain is using and the amount of oxygen your brain is using. 60% of that will go to just managing the switch, which leaves you about 40% of your capacity to do the work that matters most understanding the problem, doing good analysis, running experiments, collaborating with other people, making a good decision. You have just such a small amount of that left. And how many of us would just find it so dreamy to only have three? things that we're trying to make progress on at the same time. And what becomes really important about this and how this scales up to organizational multitasking is how we each manage our individual to-do list. Like, we should each figure that out. You know, some people say, well, I love having lots of things going on. That's great. But if you're working in an environment where you are forced to do that just to try to survive, then that's where the problem starts to come in. And I get really interested in what happens when you start to have an entire team or an entire team of teams or entire organization. People are spending 40 to 60% of their brilliance, their expertise, their capacity, just context switching back and forth all day long. Talk about low value work. And so when we look at how that scales and we start to go back to that question of how do you work more effectively? How do you get more done? How do you get more of the right things done? How do you create more value? How we spend our capacity and the context switching and the multitasking becomes really costly really quickly. And it creates a whole flood of organizational challenges and problems. And yet then we just continue on doing things the same way that we've always done them because everything's important and we have very little capacity to pause, reflect, and understand what's actually happening.
0: Gosh, there's so much in that that I could unpack. But, you know, I hear people all the time. I hear leaders say, I'm down some team members, so I have to pitch in and do it. I'm doing the work of two and a half people. My team members are doing the work of one and a half people. And we don't recalibrate the expectations of what we can deliver. We just are like, well, we have all this work to do. And so we have to figure out a way to get it done, even though we're down 10 people. And so if you are an individual that that's happening to, what do you do about it? Because I think it's easier said than done to say, hey, like I've coached people to say, you need to have a really authentic, courageous conversation with your leader to level set expectations, but sometimes there's not that psychologically safe environment to be able to do that. So how do you help move from this, I'm just going to say kind of this epidemic of context shifting that's all over the place to helping people and organizations get the best out of everybody where they truly can use their brilliance on work that adds value versus shifting from one thing to the next? I asked a similar question
1: on LinkedIn last week about layoffs because I'm really interested in what happens to the team that's left behind, that isn't laid off, right? And one of my colleagues, Steve, he wrote and he talked about the conversations that he's had to influence around how is our investment changing? Because if we're laying people off, we're saying we can't afford the investment we're currently making in our work. And so we're going to lay people off, which means we need to articulate what are we not doing now? And rarely does that happen, right? More often what happens is we're laying people off and it's all important and we actually still need to move faster. So everybody keep going, which creates a whole host of problems. So what I would say to like the individual who's on a team trying to figure out how to just stay afloat, quite literally, how to avoid drowning in all of that. I think it starts with understanding at least for yourself what that context switching looks like and look at if I need to get these five things done. By the end of the week, how can I structure my week to create enough focus to get something done and then move on to the next thing? One of the things that is a sign and symptom of a flooding organization that's really plagued by context switching is when you see everybody just having, you know, 30 minute meetings, nonstop, back to back all day long with a variety of people, not because meeting for 30 minutes is bad, but because what they really needed was two hours of working together and they couldn't get that. So they do 30 minutes a week, once a week for a month, right? And the reality is that working for two hours straight with a group of people to get something done is not the same as working two hours, 30 minutes at a time, once a week, And this is where the principle comes into play of managing our work in progress, how much we're pursuing at any given time. If you take whatever that decision is that needs to be made, that you needed a two-hour working meeting for, and you meet for two hours, you make the decision, the work gets done, and you move on. You got that done in a day. If you divide that up and you do 30 minutes once a week over the course of the month, it takes you a month to get to that outcome, that decision, that work, whatever it is and whatever value is going to come from it is delayed for a month. You open yourself up to a lot of waste that the thing that you were working on gets interrupted, changes, and now you've maybe put a couple hours into it and you just have total waste of what you've done. So looking back at like what is within your sphere of control and how can you create just a little bit more focus, which might be hard to do and still might feel like you're moving upstream to get that done, but every little slice of focus and self-prioritization that you can do will make a significant difference in your capacity and your energy at the end of the day.
0: There's so much value in that, and you know what I think about to piggyback on that is, in addition, I think we have to be aware of and communicate our working style and working needs and how we process because, and this is not that someone's better than another. Some of us process more quickly than others. Some people need to sit and think and absorb stuff before that they're going to get off go. Some people work at a quicker pace than others. And again, it doesn't mean one is better than the other, but I think we have to, we have to honor that. It's coming back to, do we know our own, what we need to be successful? Are we communicating that and advocating and setting healthy boundaries? And are we respecting other people's boundaries? I was having a conversation
1: just a couple of weeks ago with one of the organizations I'm working with. They're a PR agency. They have about 50 employees. And the CEO was noticing that and suspecting that her teams were really struggling with focus. And while they talked about it a lot, how to create focus, what they were finding is everybody was setting their own focus time separately. And so there was a lot of misalignment between getting information that you needed. Because if you sit down to focus and you don't have all the information you need, you're not going to get very far. And so they had talked a lot about that focus, and the need to like do it individually. And this is another example of, are you optimizing individually for my, your individual self or for an individual team or for the whole? And in this case, While it was true that everybody had different preferences for like when their focus time was, it was impeding the flow of work and impeding the flow of value because it was all chopped up and mixed up and nobody was actually able to get what they needed from one another on their team. And so the CEO had this conversation with some of her team leads and then each like working group, each team got together and decided together to experiment with some shared blocks of focus work time. And they paired those shared blocks of focus work time with a very quick check-in before, and then a check-in that happened between one focus block and the next day's focus block, just a quick huddle, so that they could make sure that everybody had what they needed. They would identify like maybe some people need to work together for this time. They just need to hop in a Zoom room or something like that. And the value of having a shared focus work time was that collectively they were able to effectively collaborate more, get what they needed. And they were seeing then just even after a week and a half of that, just the flow of work happening, the ease through which their work was getting done. And that made a huge, huge difference then to the energy they had to bring to their work and how much start and stop and context switching was needed along the way because they found that they were able to just flow the work with a lot more ease and it made a huge difference.
0: I think that's fabulous. And we also have to be honest, a 50-employee company is easier to do that with. if you have several hundred or even several thousand. So for people listening that... Work in a larger organization, what are some of the things that they could do to start to move towards it? Or what are some ways to start to help create work to better serve how humans actually get stuff done?
1: So, I've also worked with organizations that have 300,000 people in them, right? And they're made up of thousands of teams. So, what it looks like is moving down to the scale. So, in a very large organization that has, you know, 10,000 people, there's probably not a lot of value in the entire organization having the same block of focus because the entire organization isn't actually collaborating and working together on a day-to-day basis. So it's really about figuring out who are the people that I get my work done with and how can we work together to create that focus. Now, this is where it becomes really challenging. If your organization is designed in teams of people who maybe all have the same job description but don't actually work together, this is going to be really, really hard. Working on five projects that have five different teams is very different than one team that has all the skills they need to get that project done working on five projects together. And so there's an element of complexity that grows if your team isn't actually the people you get your work done with. And that becomes really hard if the people you get your work done with are spread out. And I don't want to paint any sort of rosy picture that there's a magic pill to cure that other than to come back to if you're a leader of that division, if you're a leader of that organization, how you design your teams will either enable the flow of value across your organization or it will impede and block the flow of value. If you do have your teams designed with people who have to work together to get their work done, then that idea of creating shared work time and shared focus scales, whether you have one team, 10 teams, 100 teams, or 5,000 teams. And I've seen it work in that way at all of those scales. But the key is you have to be able to have your boundary around your team be the people you actually need to work together with and collaborate with to get the work done.
0: I love that. You know, it makes me think because when this comes out, it's going to be the end of 2022. People are resetting going into 2023. And I think if we started, and I'm even thinking for myself with my teams, if we started just having thoughtful conversations about, can we just realign right on our purpose? Can we realign on our core values, like why and how we're here? And can we realign of really what we're about to add value, whatever that looks like? Like If, if we can keep coming back to where we add value and have alignment and agreement. And then within that, like you said, that value flow, how does each project or each team or each individual, so people know where they fit on that flow. And then can we start to have more thoughtful conversations on a regular basis about, again, are we impeding it or are we adding to it and enhancing it? It gives us something to come back to that brings consistency and clarity to kind of recalibrate and reset. Does that, is that fair to say? A hundred percent.
1: And a big part of that, I would say, if you're going to do that for your team or if anyone else is listening like, ooh, that sounds like a nice way to start 2023, what I would recommend is somehow making that visual, whether that is a whiteboard on your wall or a virtual whiteboard, but make it visual, starting with just like try to visualize that flow of value. What does it look like? How do the different steps along the way create value for your customer, create value for you, start to see it. It's really hard to manage the flow of value through your organization if you can't see it. And if you don't know how that value flows, it's really hard to prioritize. I mean, if we come all the way back to that, but everything's important thing, everything's urgent, that could be true. And I actually find that like saying what's the most important thing to do is not a helpful question because it can all be important, right? That's like asking me to pick which kid I love the most. Can't do that. But I can pick which kid needs my attention next, right? And so thinking about when you can see that flow of value, you can then start to see, ooh, where is it really stuck? That's a place to focus. That needs to be solved for Next. Doesn't mean the other things are less important, just means I need to focus here next. And when you see it, you see it. And when your whole team can see it, now you've got some shared language and some shared conversation.
0: I love that shift. And what it makes me think of is in the organizational health work that we do, we talk about creating a rally cry. And it's more about, okay, for like this next month or whatever, what's like the one thing that is going to be most impactful right now? to either add value, move the needle. So you're not saying most important. It's like, what's the one thing right now that's going to really be impactful that we want to focus on because we know we can't focus on five things at a time. It's not, it's more important. It's what needs attention now, or what's the right order to help us get where we want to go, right? Sequential, like kind of like dominoes, like this one needs to come before this. They're equally important. And there's a sequence that we have to care for. And I think what you
1: just described is really important. And it's the verb prioritization, right? And the one thing I tell my clients a lot is knowing your priorities is not the same as prioritization. Prioritization is a verb, which means that we have to rank order it. And I think when we start talking about the like first, second, third, fourth, we either think, well, that means fourth isn't important, or we think we're only going to get number one done. And if I have 10 things that I need to get done, I can't just get number one done. However, if as a team, we're looking at that and we're saying, but if we could only get one thing done this week, what's the next thing that's going to add value to get done? It would be this. If we could get two things done this week, it would be these two things. If it's three things, that. And what that does is it means that when we each are individually sitting down to do our work, we're all choosing to work on the things that are going to collectively get something done, as opposed to we know our team has 10 priorities. We know they all need to get done. And I'm going to sit down and I'm going to work on what I feel like working on today. And you're going to work on what you think you're going to work on today. And it probably doesn't align and it's not going to stack up to any of those things actually getting complete and done. It's going to take us a lot longer. So that ranking is really critical. Looking at what's going to add value now. I love the word next. What do we need to get done next? Because it frees us from having to have a values conversation about the importance of our work. And it gets us focused on getting real work accomplished, done, and moving on to the next high value item.
0: I love it. Yeah, it's next. It's not never, it's next. If I want to get from point A to point B, I have to take a certain number of steps or I have to drive a certain number of miles or whatever it is, right? It's like, what's next to get there? And can we align and and be on the same page? You know, when I think about when people get overwhelmed or stressed or there's too many things going on or too many priorities, that can be very calming to go, "What's next?" and I'm clear about what I need to focus on and can add value this week or today, rather than getting overwhelmed by a 100 things on my to-do list.
1: Yeah, and it gives us a sense of control, which isn't bad. We all need control. We crave control. Our brains and our bodies want control. And so when you are focused on that, what next, one of the things you're doing is you're managing your work in progress limits, how much you're pursuing at any given time, which creates focus. And then when you've got room, you get something done. And now what's next? You get to look at that to-do list and you get to pull something in, which is an of control. It's saying, what's the next most important thing now? At the beginning of the week, I might've thought it was A, and now I see that it's actually C. I'm going to pull C in and get it done as opposed to what often happens was it's all just pushed into the queue. If everything can get started, then we are in a constant state of just being pushed at and flooded by all the important things. But if we create a boundary around how much work we'll do at a given time, then we get to use that boundary to have a sense of control. And what do you know, when we do that, we actually are able to work with higher quality We get things done faster. And over time, in most circumstances, you will get more done because you're not spending so much time context switching all the time and starting and stopping and trying to get it all done at the exact same time.
0: Yeah, you're designing work for humans and how we actually function. Go figure. So speaking of being human, I want to shift gears a little bit because, as you know, one of my focuses of this podcast as well is to normalize the messiness of being human. And what I've learned is that even if we're having a great day and we know that we're in flow, our humanity will get the best of us at times. And we all can get into this space where, and stress exacerbates it, where we tell ourselves these stories that keep us safe and small. And when we're in that space, we feel like we're the only one, but it's a common human experience. So what I would love for you to share and be courageous, Brandy, is what is a self-limiting story that you still tell yourself from time to time? And when it shows up, how do you deal with it and move beyond it so that you can still show up as a leader and maximize your positive impact around you?
1: One of the stories that I've told myself for a really long time is that I'm not a writer. And I'm certainly not an author. I'm not very good at writing. I'm a lot better at speaking. And about six or seven years ago, I was working with a business coach at the time. And one of the things she said to me is, you need to write a book. And my first thought was, I'm not a writer. Like, that's not what I do. And she just from time to time would say this again. And eventually I decided that maybe I did want to try writing a book because i'd been teaching and working with these themes around prioritization how do we design ourselves to get good work done and recognizing that like i kept wanting to like hand a book to the teams that i was working with and say here think about it this way and have something that they could interact with on their own time reflect on and so i started to see that a book would be a good teaching tool because that's how i identify myself i'm a teacher quite literally long ago i used to teach high school special ed i'm a teacher And so a book seemed like a good teaching tool, but I still told myself the story that I'm not a writer. And it took me two and a half years to get my book done in part because pandemic and emerging priorities and all those things. But along the way, I still held this like story that I'm not a writer so much so that even uh, shortly after my book came out, I was talking to somebody about it and I said, well, I did write this book, but I'm not really a writer. And that was my business coach who I was telling that to. And she just paused and she called me out on that, um, that what do you mean you're not a writer? And and she asked me to really reflect on that. And in doing so, one of the things that I recognized was like, I actually really loved process of writing. And what I loved even more was having readers and having a way and a medium to interact with people that they could reflect on on their own time. And that became really important to me. And so I've been really wrestling with that over the last few months as well, feeling this pull to, I kind of like writing. I am an author. If I'm an author, how am I not a writer? And so I'm wrestling with that and I'm stretching myself in that way. And I'm trying to create some time to continue writing as opposed to I authored a book, I wrote it once and now I'm done and I'm moving on to what does it look like to have writing be part of my own leadership practice? And I don't know the answers to that, but I'm sorting through it and I'm giving myself some time and space to like try on that idea.
0: I love that you're leaning in and I love the idea of trying on because I think so many times if we're going to move past that self-limiting narrative, it can feel overwhelming to like just switch and say, I'm going to try this on or I'm just going to lean in for a little bit. So that's awesome. And I would say, yeah, your coach, I get, I'm sorry, but if you've written a book, you're a writer, but you can, or you could say writing is part of my leadership practice or, or whatnot. So I love that reframing. That's awesome. All right. Are you ready for quick questions? I'm ready. Fill in the blank. Living authentically is... Oh my goodness, my brain doesn't move this quickly. Living authentically is um, telling the truth. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? Go slower. Nice, like that. Something people would be surprised to know about you.
1: That I get really anxious when I'm with people. Really? Yeah, I get really anxious when I'm with people. Talk about a self limiting story that I have overcome. It used to be that I'm not a people person and I'm awkward around people. And I realized that's not true. I just have an internal like practice I need to do when I'm interacting with other
0: people. Would not have known that. So there you go. That is a surprise. Okay. What is your favorite go to movie?
1: My favorite go to movie is really whatever my kids are into watching because I love hanging out with them. And so lately, that has been Mitchell's versus the machines.
0: How about your go to song?
1: These days, it's anything Brandy Carlisle. In these silent days, that's my jam.
0: What is something you can't live without? And I say something lightly. It doesn't have to be a thing. But what's something you can't live without? My
1: tea. Just brings me so much joy. Do you have a go-to flavor? It used to be called Evening in Missoula. I think a tea source calls it Northern Lights now, but it's like minty and some lavender. And I like the smell of it just as much as I like
0: the taste. What is something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy?
1: Snuggles with my kids at the end of the day and morning walks with my dog. Those are kind of the things that anchor the start and end of my day.
0: Love it. Hold on to the snuggles while they last because there's a point where they don't want to snuggle anymore and it's so sad. At least my puppies will snuggle with me. But. Yeah. <laughs> and last but not least for the quick questions, what are you grateful for right now?
1: I am really grateful for conversations and the opportunity to have those and to really listen and understand how people are kind of processing what's around them. But the gift of a good conversation is just a joy. Source of connection, for sure, for sure.
0: Well, I want to let you close with one final question. Brandy, if you could challenge leaders everywhere to practice this one behavior that would create more human workplaces and equip everyone to show up as a leader, what would that be?
1: I would challenge everyone to pay attention to that idea of work-in-progress limits. How much can you do at one time while still feeling like a human? And experiment and figure that out and then use that to make prioritization easier, to get more work done, but to really pay attention to what's the boundary around how much work I can pursue in any given moment and then work with it as opposed to fighting it and see what happens.
0: I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. To learn more, head over to peopleforwardnetwork.com. And of course, hit that follow button.